cutie. Hey, baby. <laughs> you can't make me giggle. Little giggle smith over there. Yeah. How's it going? <laughs> it's good. We're on episode three. I can't believe it. We made it to episode three. Yeah. We're going to say that at the start of every episode. That. Yeah. It's not like, you know, we had to evade a series of deadly ordeals in between the last episode and now. So I don't know why we're surprised that we're recording the next one. <laughs> it's not like there was an assassination attempt to try and stop this from going down. And we're like, oh, my God. That's not true. Technically, there was something slash someone trying to stop us. And that was Rudy. Yeah. Little kitty cat Rudy. Trying to step on the microphone. As soon as he sees the microphones come out, that's when he decides that he has to yowl his little head off and come and jump on your tummy and nudge the microphones. Jump on your tummy. Try and jump on everything and just meow. Yeah. That's a cute picture. He's a little miscreant. Yeah. (laughs) He's a rapscallion. (laughs) Yeah. He's a troublemaker, that little cat. We'll keep an eye on him. There's a YouTuber that I watch and his cat's always in the frame and his cat's always just lying there asleep. I'm like, how can we get Rudy to do that? To just you can't lie train everyone? a cat like Rudy. You He's an independent spirit. <laughs> he He's unruly. He doesn't want to do what we want him to do. Cats no matter like how that, much though. milk I give him. If you bribe him enough, he will be extremely pleasant to you for 30 seconds before mm. and after you give him a treat. But... Besides that, he kind of just goes his own way. He's a beatnik poet in, <laughs> in that sense. He will always love you until he doesn't, which means love, 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 bite. Remember when he beat me yesterday, you saw his thought process? He's bit you so many times that I don't even know what time yeah. you're referring to. But at this point, even for me, it's like, oh, all right. That's just a part of you who you are, You just accept it, though. I refuse to accept Rudy biting me. Oh, did you hear that? I don't know if the microphone will pick that up. The microphone is not going to pick like that up. There's like the craziest, like, windy ruffle of leaves and trees. and. Yeah, outside the window, there's like a tree quite close. And whenever it's like gusty, there's like that beautiful sound of leaves rustling in harmony. I'm just really enjoying October. Yeah. And autumn and sweaters. I'm enjoying that it's starting to get dark at like... Half six, seven. Yeah. When it's light until like 10 p.m., it's kind of like the day just feels like it just goes on forever yeah, and ever and ever. So what have you got for me this week? Okay. Little Ryan. Little Ryan. Yeah. Is that my name? Little, yeah. The podcast listeners can't see, but I'm actually six foot nine. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually a shoe in for... The NBA draft. And I'm 5'7". Imagine if I was 5'7". I'd be tall. Relatively, yeah. I'm only 5'1 and a half. You wouldn't be tall relative to Shaq, but you'd be <laughs> tall relative to like a seven-year-old. It's all relative, baby. <laughs> How funny was that photo that you showed me? Which one? It was, wasn't it Shaq? Oh, Shaq and the, um, Mighty Mouse yeah, from the UFC. That was Who's funny. like 5'1 or whatever. He's actually half his size. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. So, yeah, what have you got for me? So, yeah, before you rudely interrupted, how dare you? <laughs> My first topic is a opinion piece I saw on, of all places, The Guardian. The Guardian. There is going to be a lot of 
material source from the Guardian's opinion piece section because yeah. it is a bit of a cesspool. I, I think one of mine is, is from the Guardian as well. It's just, it's like an open wound that is just, you know, <laughs> pulsating with... Okay, we get the graphic picture. Gore. I don't know. I don't know what's going with that, that <laughs> metaphor. So anyway, this opinion piece was... And this is actually the second such opinion piece on this topic I've seen from The Guardian in recent months. And it was a guy basically wrote... He wrote a short article arguing that MMA should be banned, mixed martial arts. Oh, wow. Um, he's from Australia. And I take it that MMA is of questionable legality there at the moment. And so he was basically making the case... He had kind of a, a scattershot argument where he didn't really develop any one particular strand of his point very well. He basically just threw a lot of things at the wall, like, you know, MMA fighters can get badly injured and then spend the rest of their lives in dehabilitated situations. Um, he also argued that MMA being televised kind of encourages violence in society generally. And yeah, a few other things. But his basically his general point was that it's bad and it should be banned. That's okay. Already, I feel like I've got a lot to say on this. Please do. So, I do. There's a lot of sports where people get can get badly hurt or injured and then die in the moment. Like there's people who boxing matches. They they box and then they die or whatever. That's happened before, and. Famously, like American footballers, if they play for a long time, often have some kind of head trauma head related trauma from it. And they conditions. wear like big fat helmets yeah. and, you know, lots padding of and padding. Stuff like that. It's not like people go into that type of sport not knowing what's going to happen. They know they're going to get hit in the head. So I feel like he's kind of coming at this as if like, as if they don't know that, as if yeah. they don't have a choice. But you have a choice. If you want to go into it knowing all of that, then I don't see what the problem... Like, it's really, it's a really strange reason for someone to be like, oh, this should be banned. And then the, one of the other things you said was about how it encourages violence. I mean, come on, guys. There are plenty of other things that, like, has violence in them. Like, almost all TV shows have violence in them. Video games, movies, it's everywhere. Like, if you're going to start banning... yeah, It's like, where do you stop? And also, I think if you are a sane person, you know, those types of things don't make you go out and beat people up. You, you've already got that inside you. Do you know what I mean? If anything... I think for most people, when they see a particularly bloody, violent MMA match where a guy gets his, you know, head gashed open and he gets knocked out cold, I don't know. I think for most people, it kind of puts you off violence yeah. because you see, like, I could see, potentially see the argument, although I don't agree with it, that the violence in, say, action movies is so sanitized and glorified. It's like, you know, the, the hero yeah. gets into a fist fight with five villains and he handily dispatches them. There's no blood that he just hits them the right way and they all go down one by one. That gives you a idea of violence that is not yeah. particularly accurate and it doesn't clue you into the reality of violence. But when you watch an MMA fight, it's as pure and unfiltered as it possibly can be. It's two guys or women locked in a cage in a fist fight. 
and there's going to be blood, there's going to be injuries, there's going to be all kinds of mayhem and carnage. And I think for most people, there is a thrill in watching it, but there's also kind of a, that's mixed with a kind of a repulsion because violence is repulsive in some sense. I am a fan of MMA and I get really involved and I'm like, oh, I really want such and such to win and I'm like cheering him on and, you know, when the other guy does something, I'm like, oh, he's cheating or whatever. Like, I get really involved in it, but there's never a moment when the guy's getting like bloodied up where I'm like, yeah, look at all that blood. Like, and when, you know, when they knock them out and then they're still punching them, that really distresses me because they're already out. But, you know, until it's stopped, it's not stopped, if you know what I mean. So... I definitely think for most people, there's a line and they could see that line and that's when it becomes apparent. But I think if you think the opposite of that, where it really gets you going when there's like loads and loads of blood and you like it when it gets like even extra violent, you know, like when they are punching them when they're out, then I think you've already got that thing inside you that that kind of, that works for you anyway. I think you don't really... It's okay. What I think then is maybe it encourages those people that already have it inside them. But what are you going to do? You're going to say because this small percentage of maniacs might be triggered yeah, and go on a like, killing spree, we're not going to let everything is going to be baby proofed and exactly. dumbed down. And why can't we have nice things? You know, boundarized. Um, yeah, I agree. I think that idea of the MMA fan as this kind of savage, bloodthirsty cretin who is just desperate for someone to, you know, lose some teeth or get blinded (laughs) in one eye or have their legs broken. I think that is, that is just a caricature. I think if you really were to poll the average MMA fan, they appreciate the technical ability, the athletic ability of the people competing. They enjoy the spectacle of violence, of course, and everyone likes a knockout because it is so exciting. It is so, it gets you on that really visceral kind of primal level. But a lot of fights don't end in knockouts and the fans still appreciate them. There are a lot of fights that get deemed fight of the year that don't end in a knockout. And some of them blood isn't even drawn. The fans like other things besides those kind of yeah. the more unpleasant aspects of it. Yeah, like sometimes we'll be watching a fight or whatever, and I'll be like, uh, I'll be like, technically that was boring. It's like, yeah, he kind of like, you know, that other guy's eye is bloody or whatever, but actually this was kind of boring yeah. because he did just go in and like punch him. He didn't use those kind of techniques that you learn and kind of, um, you know, like when they, train and they know they're going up against a certain person they'll train in a certain way and it's like you want to see that you want to see how they've developed from their last fight you want to see all the different techniques they can use and it's always so exciting when like you know a fighter's got like really great movement and like they can you know kind of like Carlos Condit the way he moves like I really enjoy that when you can really see that they, this is like a craft. This yeah. is this is something that they have to learn. It's not just bullies in a ring trying to beat each other up. It's 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 a sport. Well, that's another kind of canard about MMA, is that some people have this idea that MMA is about what is called squash matches, where one guy is really 
leaps and bounds better than the other guy and he's just put in there to destroy the other guy and put on a spectacle of just destruction a lot of times the fans don't like those really one-sided short matches because you don't get to see much you didn't get to see each guy show what he's really made of show his heart show his technique show his endurance show varied techniques Fans like when the guys are evenly matched and it goes for the full, you know, three or five and rounds. And really don't know who's going to win. Yeah. And so, yeah, reading this guy's article, like I said, it it was almost every strand of his argument was underdeveloped. It really was just kind of throw everything I can out there to try and demonize the yeah. sport. And like you said, the idea that athletes go into MMA without an understanding that there is injury possible and there is long-term brain damage likely, I think is ridiculous because you don't get into professional MMA overnight. Like if there was, you know, um, recruiters just walking the street, grabbing people off the street with, (laughs) you know, the allure of a thousand dollars, throwing them into a cage, then you could be like, well, these people don't know what they're doing. They're uninformed. They can't meaningfully consent to this danger. But to, to have a professional MMA fight, you have to train for, you know, however many years. You have to have amateur fights. You have to spar in the gym. You have to talk to so many different people and learn so many different things and see so much that there's no way you can go through that process yeah. and not understand the dangers of this sport much better than the average person. I agree. I definitely agree. And I think to then write that and say basically the opposite of that, as if to assume that people don't know that is just really strange. Is MMA banned in Australia? I I didn't look into it too deeply, but I think in some parts of Australia, it's still of kind of dubious legality. Mm-hmm. I think the battle is still kind of ongoing in Australia to legalise MMA fully, but I don't know that for sure. But that's well, the impression that the writer gave in his... Wasn't it just recently... Made legal in New York. Yeah. For the longest time, it wasn't legal in New York City, That's which is pretty crazy. It would be banned in certain parts of the country, but not everywhere. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense to me, really. That's just kind of the nature of state by state yeah. decision making. MMA, I mean, even though it's not new, it's relatively new in terms of mainstream. Right? Yeah. I don't know. I think if you don't know anything about it, you're not, like, a fan and so you haven't watched, like, you know, event after event, then you might... Because when they talk about cage fighting, that's MMA, right? Yeah. And so I think you have this idea of, like, you know, two thugs in a cage. Just, just kind of... a big crowd around them shouting, like, you know, money being thrown in the middle. (laughs) I don't know. This is, like, some dystopian movie, (laughs) The Thunderdome. (laughs) They throw, like, stacks but of I cash. I feel like that's what people think when yeah. they don't know too much. Like, they don't, you know, it's really no different from boxing except you can do more. Yeah. Like, there's no difference. It's got, there's rules, there's a referee, and there are judges. You know, there's an association that has to kind of govern these things. And And there are safeguards, like, if you get knocked out or injured in your fight, you're then you know, technically suspended for a certain amount of time until such time that you can prove that you've healed. Yeah, I do think there's two ways to go about rebuffing an argument like this guy put forward. And I think one of them is potentially 
unwise, even kind of injurious to the argument of MMA in general. And it's this kind of like denialist approach of saying that MMA isn't that dangerous and there aren't long-term consequences to it in terms of brain health and things like that. And I think people need to be careful not to go down that route. I think we need to be as honest as possible that there are almost certainly going to be health consequences for everyone who competes MMA. But that doesn't mean that it should be banned because people should be able to take part in dangerous activities if they are properly informed of the risks and the consequences. I don't like this whole paternalistic authoritarian stance of the government has to make the choices for the people about what they can take part in. And if it's dangerous in any way, then government has to step in and say, no, no, little baby, we're going (laughs) to stop you from doing this because you might harm yourself and you're not smart enough to reasonably make this decision for yourself. I think that is a dangerous road that leads to tyranny and the baby proofing of society yeah and it will always make bring it back to well where do you where do you draw the line because there are other sports that do this too namely boxing american football you know it's not just oh you can have long-term effects or something could horrible could happen and you could die people get often get injured and can't continue anymore you know they get injured for yeah. good and that happens in so many sports but of course you know these same people that might want to put a stop to certain things you know would never ever be like no we should american football shouldn't be allowed like can you imagine trying to trying to ban that for instance yeah well, I that's think such it's a cultural partly staple because that you it's new and i feel like like I said, if you don't know too much about it, you have this idea of it and it's just this horrible kind of violent... Of course it is violent, but just like boxing, it's violence with rules, you know? That's exactly what it is. And you can't ignore the fact that it's violence, but you have to accept that people should be allowed to take part in violence. Yeah, they're grown adults. They can make their own decisions. That is kind of an instinct within us. And if you don't, if you don't have a way to let people vent that instinct in a yeah. safe and structured and rule orientated way, that the type of person who is com- feels compelled to do that is going to go and take part in bar fights. They're going to, you know, get into situations that are bad for them and the other people involved. Whereas you can give them a safe outlet yeah. where they can potentially earn a living, become skilled at something, learn self-discipline, self-mastery. Like, I just don't see, I mean, I think definitely there's a point to be made that there needs to be more information, more studies done in terms of the health effects long-term and short-term of competing at MMA. I have no problem with the government doing studies into that. And if they find information that says you're almost certainly going to have brain damage if you get a certain amount of concussions, pulling that out there with the hope of deterring MMA participation. That's fine. That's just kind of soft pressure from the government towards making what they would consider wiser decisions. But I have no patience for the idea of government banning things to save the people from themselves. I think that's just the type of condescending tyranny that we need to get away from. And we need to disengage our 
forms of thinking from that as the end point. We need to start thinking government should be as minimal as possible. It should basically allow us to do what we want to do as long as it doesn't hurt other people, unless, of course, they are consenting and taking part in a sporting yeah, event. Yeah, exactly. You, you can say whether this is something you want to do, whether this is something you want to be your whole life, and at the end of it, I may or may not be the same as I was. I might, I may be injured forever, or eventually I might not be as, you know, I might have head trauma, but actually I will have lived my life the way I wanted to live my life. And it's funny because you said something earlier that made me think, I mean, there are a couple of fighters that do basically say, well, I just love to fight. I love to fight. And that's a fact that, some people do just love to fight and it's the way they are in boxing as well they love to box which is fighting which is violence and no one's trying to ban that do you know what i mean maybe they were they kind of are that's i would just say that did you see about the boxer who died recently whenever that happens there is renewed calls for boxing under the same rhetoric to be banned based on the idea that it's too dangerous for people to take part in and I would counter it with all the arguments I've already made. Yeah. I think the the problem here is that some people look at MMA and a lot of the times they look at it from a standpoint of complete ignorance where they do think of it, like you were saying, as just this kind of brutal blood sport, like just completely pure carnage, like no sophistication, no pursuit of any kind of end goal. And they think there's no way that I would ever do that. Even if I was going to get paid thousands of dollars and, you know, be able to take part in this huge spectacle on the world stage on television and be known by all these fans and get all this fame. There's no way that I would do that because I could get injured. I could have brain trauma that leads to, you know, decreased mental acuity later in life. And so they think if I wouldn't do it, then no one can reasonably decide to do it. And that's the problem. They can't see that other people can make different choices. But so many people, I mean, it really just depends on how you want to live your life. What you just said made me think of people that do just like extreme activities, you know, like they want to parachute. Yeah, all of these things you could in an instant die. Like, it's how you want to live your life. Do you want to say, okay, well, but I want these are the things I want to do. I want that adrenaline rush. I want to feel like I've experienced all these different things. I want to fight. I want to perform. That's my dream. If it does cost me my life, that's okay. Because if I wasn't doing it, well, you could say that, well, I wasn't living the life I want to live anyway. I wasn't really living. A lot of people do um see life that way and they do experience things that way and then there are people who are the complete opposite like me there are lots of things I wouldn't do because it's I might die and you know those people might be like well you're not living well actually no I am I'm just choosing to live a different way I don't need that adrenaline rush I don't need that risk factor everyone comes at it from a different perspective and they value risk at a different level I do, I definitely have patience for the line of debate that has qualms with the safety measures in MMA today. Like, I, I, de- I pay attention with, with acute interest to people who say that MMA should be fought without gloves, for example. 
because if you're wearing hand wraps and gloves, you can punch a lot harder than you could with your bare fist. You can also punch a lot more because you don't have to worry about your hand getting broken. And you can punch the parts of the head that are much harder than you would usually be able to because, like I said, your hand would get broken. And so there is this kind of idea that if if fighters did fight bare knuckle, which would probably lead to some, you know, optics problems because people would say, oh, this is even more brutal and, yeah. you know, unsophisticated than before. But if they did fight bare knuckle, then they would be able to punch the head a lot less, which would then in turn lead to a lot less head trauma, a lot less knockouts, and that could potentially make the sport a little bit safer. So things so like that are worth debating. So you don't think a heavier punch is equal to punching someone four times? It's a lighter punch, but they're punching them four times. What's more dangerous, yeah. the heavier punch or... It's a good point. Getting hit four times. Well, that's why I think that's why I want there to be studies into that type of thing. The more I have no problem with independent, unbiased studies into the potential harm of MMA, because I think that MMA fighters should be as informed as possible, just like anybody else when they're taking part in a risky activity. Yeah. Um, another, some people want MMA to be fought with headgear, you know, like the. Yeah. The kind of like padded helmets they wear when they spar or boxers sometimes wear at the amateur level, I think. You'd never knock anyone out. Yeah, but I see knockouts that's that's kind of like the the core internal conflict with a lot of MMA fans is that knockouts are exciting, especially when it comes from nowhere. Like it's it's that climax moment which yeah. and let's just leave aside the you know, the sexual connotations of that. <laughs> let's not mix sex and violence too much here. But it is that exciting, unexpected culmination of this physical contest. And so when it happens, you're like, you do feel that that rush of adrenaline. And it, it does feel like a good thing to watch that because it's so satisfying as a viewer. But on the other hand, you know that that guy is probably going to wake up with a concussion. You know that that guy is going to wake up not knowing where he is. You know that that guy's career is now going to be harmed because he got knocked out and that reduces his, mm. you know, credibility in the sport. And you know that the more knockouts this guy accumulates, the more likely that he's going to be dribbling by the time he gets to 50, not remembering his kid's name. And when you think about that, it is extremely sobering because you're thinking about people. The most important thing you have is your mind because that allows you to do everything else. Everything stems from there. And the idea that someone is degrading or destroying their capability of thinking, their capacity to think things through reasonably and quickly, that is, it is dark. And when you look at it that way, when you see a guy get viciously knocked out where, you know, I remember when we saw a fight recently where the guy's eyes were still open and he was stiff yeah, and that really horrible. freaked you out. When we, when you see that and you think about it from that perspective, it is hard to watch and you do start to think, how can we reduce knockouts in MMA so that they do happen extremely rarely and you do still have that component of the sport and you do have that excitement sometimes, but they happen at a much lower rate so that fighters can last longer in terms of brain health and there's a lower risk of long-term consequences to the sport. I know what you're saying and I could live without the knockout where it would kind of just be you can either win on points or you could win by submission. Or referee stoppage. Yeah. Well, how would the referee stop it, though? 
Unless it was, it would have to be a submission, right? No, it's just like now you you can still win by TKO, which is when you you're know, not defending yourself. Yeah, right? you're just getting punched okay, and you can't so defend yourself anymore. I could live without the knockout if things changed and that was taken out of the equation. They wear helmets, so it's much much harder to get a knockout. You still get TKOs, you get submissions, and you can win on points. And I think a good portion of the people would, but I think the majority would be no. No, you're taking a really exciting part of the sport away. But the majority of who? Fans or fighters? And which is more important? Yeah, possibly. Because there are, A, a lot of fighters that haven't been knocked out. And B, underneath that, there are fighters that have been knocked out and don't necessarily see it as... You hear when Ronda Rousey was knocked out for, like, the first time, you know, she talks about how if, you know... The effects last a very long time. Yeah, they do. It's not just, oh, the next day you're kind of fucked. You've got a headache and then the day after that you're you're totally fine. It's months or longer. You know, people recommend you take a really long time out. Um, But it doesn't affect everyone that way, I don't think. Or maybe people are just different in the way that they choose to kind of push past it. So I think there would be a portion of the fighters that aren't going to they wouldn't want to kind of give that up because they don't want to give up knocking people out as well as... Even though they risk getting yeah. knocked out in turn. And yeah. I think it, I don't think it would go down well with the audience. While there are people like me and you that would be like, okay, well, I see. I can see all the benefits from this and I would still really enjoy the sport. There is really that kind of exciting thrill factor that I don't think people would want to kind of give up. Well, I just want to see, as a, as a long-time fan of MMA, I've been watching MMA for a long time, I am at the point now where I know so many MMA fighters, I know their stories, I know, you know, you watch the, the stuff of them outside the cage, you see their lives, you see they've got families and stuff. More and more, I'm kind of amenable to things like fighter unions so that the fighters get paid yeah. better. Because I think right now, I think a lot of people have this idea that if you fight in the UFC, even if you're, you know, a debutante, which is a weird word to use for a cage fighter, word. but even if it's your first time, people have this idea that you hit the big time, you hit the jackpot, yeah. you hit the lottery in terms of MMA, and now you're getting, you know, $100,000 or whatever. But the reality is these guys still get paid very small amounts in terms of how many months they have to train, the other expenses they have to pay. I'm definitely all for measures to increase fighter pay so that when you look at that equation of, yes, they're risking their health, but they've got a current financial reward and also the possibility of an even greater financial reward in the future, that latter part of the equation is made even more worthwhile because there's even more money available to them. I think that is definitely something every MMA fan should be supporting. Seems a little bit as well like um, it's definitely like a pick and choose type of thing in terms of I I almost feel like each fight is getting paid a different amount. It's based on how popular they are, how big their name is, how big of an audience they can bring in, what their outcome of their fights usually are, etc, etc. Um, you know that there are big names like Ronda Rousey and Conor McGregor who get paid millions, but their opponents don't get paid that much, even if 
the odds aren't completely stacked in yeah. their favor. So it's a very strange, like recently when it the new Conor McGregor fight was announced, he was, you know, saying that the other guy didn't even try to negotiate a higher pay because he's so used to kind of getting that regular. And there should be someone on his side saying, dude, you could, you know, this is, this is like, could be the fight of your life. You, could have earned way really more. cashed out here, yeah. And if there was that kind of union or whatever to do that, to kind of represent the fighters. I mean, he should have someone doing that anyway, even if it's just like an agent or whatever. Yeah. But I think a lot of them don't. I think it really is just like their voice to the UFC's voice, and then that's how yeah. it's worked out. David versus the Goliath. But a lot of them will just take whatever they can get because they want to stay in the game. Yeah. They want to... You know, they want to be in the big leagues. Yeah. Well, that's when you see a lot of fighters complain about they're not getting paid as much as they want or they're not getting the fights they want, even though the rankings say that they should be fighting, you know, whoever. That kind of touches on the core dichotomy of the UFC and MMA in that MMA is a sport, MMA is what happens in the UFC, but the UFC is a prize fighting organization. They're two separate things. The UFC, the people who own the UFC, they care about the sport, obviously, about its credibility, its public image, about advancing it and making it safer and things like that. But that's also leveraged against the financial stakes. They are a company at heart and they want Mm -hmm. to make as much money as possible. And so when you realize that everyone employed by the UFC is a prize fighter, then you realize that the guys who play their cards well, like Conor McGregor, they have seen that they are a prize fighter. They're not an athlete taking part in a sport primarily. And then they use that to their advantage. Whereas yeah. a lot of guys feel they are still kind of deluding themselves into thinking, if I was playing tennis, I mean, I would play against this guy because he's there in the rankings. I'm here in the rankings. And a sport is supposed to be a meritocracy. Whereas the UFC is not like that. There's backroom deals yeah. and there's who's the company man and who's booking against the company's wishes and things like that. And it's often really just about the names. Such and such, I mean, we've seen already people jump in um, weight classes just to kind of be able to pair those names together. The law of the super fight. Yeah. So not only are you jumping weight classes, but people will just, you know, it doesn't matter if you're number 15 or number two. If you're popular, like you'll have people's favourites, like someone like Uriah Faber. He might not be in the top three or whatever. Well, I'm sure maybe he was at one point. Well, not after his last fight. Yeah, but he's really popular. And so people want to see him fight. Um, and so he might get a really good fight with someone who is in the top three, which doesn't necessarily make sense. So all those fighters in between are like, what about me? Why am I getting the fight? But it's just because they're not as popular. So like you said, it's really just about the companies making all these decisions really just to make money. So I do I agree that there should be some kind of like union or whatever, because you're constantly seeing fighters annoyed, you know, they'll tweet out stuff and you know threaten to kind of leave or whatever you know in reality they can't leave because they're under a contract but they have no representation but they also don't if they want to compete at the highest highest level they also don't really have any alternative if you leave the ufc like jose aldo was recently agitating and claiming that he was going to leave the ufc and maybe he will maybe he won't but he also said if i leave the ufc i'm done 
because I'm not going to go from the top to the second best. I'm not going to go from the first league to the second league. He doesn't want to fight in a Bellator. He doesn't want to fight in a Road FC, I think they're called now, or any of those other promotions because the UFC is the top of the pile and there isn't another top of the pile organization so that the benefits the UFC gets from being a monopoly would be reduced. There are fans, obviously, that watch everything to do with MMA yeah, that they can possibly watch. Even the smaller yeah. organizations. And then there are fans like me. I only watch You know UFC. MMA as yeah. the UFC. I, you know, there's probably people like me that don't even know that the two things are separate. Yeah, that, that's very true. I mean? People say, do you fight UFC? Yeah. And they don't realize exactly. the disconnect there. Um. And I didn't know that at first. Yeah, well, a lot of people don't. And I only watch UFC. I don't watch any of the others. So there are going to be a big, you know, there is going to be a portion of the, especially with how popular it's become in the last year or two, there's definitely going to be a massive portion of people that only watch the UFC. So it's like, why would you kind of leave? It has a completely different audience, I feel. Well, that's why you need something like a fighters union. And I understand that there are problems with unions and they can potentially be bad things in themselves in certain situations when they kind of run amok and they take advantage of their union members. But right now, if you're Joe Smo in the UFC, <laughs> just some low-level guy who's got, you know, 6-0, and oh, he's having his first fight in the UFC, they can pretty much bend you over the barrel. You have got no leverage no negotiating power against them they hold all the chips and if they say to you you've got to fly here fight a guy who's much better than you in his home city and you know you've only got three weeks to do it to train well if they say jump you've got to ask how high because you need to be in the ufc if you want to be at that top level and get as much exposure as possible and there's only two ways to kind of be able to kind of get what you want to pull the rope you know, your way instead of it being pulled the other way is to either be really popular. A la Conor McGregor. Yeah. Because of like your persona or to be winning, winning, winning. GSP. You know, so they're the only ways. Whereas if you did have some kind of representation, it could be, well, no, because such and such has fought this many fights and you want them now to fight this other fight when they only have like 14 days notice or whatever. So actually now we want extra money. But there's no one there to say that. Yeah, You've either got to have the balls to do it yourself. Yeah. And a lot of fighters won't because that's their only income. Well, they don't want to piss off And they want to the stay company. in the game and they want to seem like, you know... Company men. Yeah. And yeah, I think... MMA is a sport that is particularly apt for a union, for that collective bargaining power, because the individual people, like I said, they don't have much power on their own. But if they group together and, you know, say one of them's getting a bad deal from the UFC, then the union can step in and say, you can shaft this guy if you want, but then 10 other guys aren't going to do what you want. And so... Yeah, I I definitely think the UFC is, yeah, an MMA strike would be something to behold. But yeah, I definitely think the UFC is a monopoly right now. I mean, for a period, they gobbled up a lot of smaller um, organizations like Strike Force and Pride and things like that. And I don't know if there was any kind of antitrust lawsuit filed, but it's clear that they are a monopoly now. They are the 500-pound gorilla in the room, and then everyone else is just, you know, a little chimp. 
and no one can go against the gorilla because it holds so much power. And that's like what you said. MMA fighters are putting themselves into bad situations, maybe fighting against guys they shouldn't be fighting against in terms of um, a skill disparity because they don't want to lose favor of the UFC. Because if you get kicked out of the UFC, you're out. You've been kicked down from the top of the pile yeah. and maybe you have to start all all the way again when you potentially financially can't afford to do so. And so, yeah, I think another safety measure would be to try and dissolve that monopolistic power that the UFC has so that fighters can make more prudent, more self-interested decisions for their health and for their career and for whatnot. Hopefully that becomes a thing. There's been talk about it. Yeah. But I can't ignore the fact that when you talked about chimps, I had the strongest urge to do a chimp impression. Why? And I don't know... (laughs) Do you do a good chimp impression? No. Is that like a secret I skill? I feel like I probably don't fully actually know what a chimp sounds like either. Maybe 90%. And so I was but about heard to people do doing the... it. You were going to do an, an impression of someone doing an impression probably, of a chimp, yeah. weren't you? But yeah, That's I think meta... that kind of... <laughs> that tells you that I'm, I'm probably... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think after that, literal monkey business maybe we should go on to the next topic <laughs> yeah so i saw a article on the guardian as you do yeah as we all do apparently and it was have our children been harmed by having pets sure interesting yeah and the article is basically a mother talking about how her children only are only so old, and yet they've already gone through the certain amount of pets have already died. And even though they always say afterwards, you know, we're not going to have any more, we're not going to have any more because it's too upsetting, they always then they repeat the cycle. Basically, a pet dies, you get a new one. I don't know what made me want to talk about this article. I, I guess just that idea of. Her wanting, saying, should we not let our kids have pets so that they don't have to go through the grieving process? But it's like, well, that's how you learn. Like, usually the first instance you have of grieving is because your pet dies or you lose your pet, like they run away or something. That's usually... And I feel like that is a really good starting point because... This is not always the case, but for me, it's dependent... Well, you can't really compare, and I feel like I'm not going to articulate this very well, but to me, it's the same type of devastation when a person dies, when my pet dies, because I am that pet person where the pet is a part of the family, the pet's my child, you know? Not everyone sees it like that, where it's like... You know, some people just kind of see it as, oh, that's really sad. And then a few weeks or a few months later, it's kind of forgotten. And then they get a new pet and everything's all right. Um, Whereas for some people, it really can be on the same level as like a person dying. If you have that deep, long-standing connection, yeah. Yeah, again, depending on what person, you know, there's levels of grief and there's, you know. And what type of animal it is as well. Yeah, you know, it's not... I would definitely say a fish dying is not the same as your cat dying. Or Some whatever. animals just lend themselves better to being emotionally yeah, bonded with. Exactly. Um, so just this idea of wanting to kind of shield the children from any kind of loss. 
But then can you imagine being like 21 or something and you've never experienced grief before? It's going to hit you like a ton of bricks and it does hit you like a ton of bricks anyway. But I feel like it's like baby steps. Like I feel for me, it was only recently that I like I had I remember being at school and like a lot of people's grandparents had already died because my mum had me when she was a teenager so my grandparents were still quite young whereas most people's grandparents were actually old at that point and so they were suffering those kinds of losses really early and I didn't really have a pet when I was little I mean I had one instance of sort of experiencing pet death but it wasn't really my pet so it was upsetting but it wasn't devastating and um and then I didn't experience person grief until I was a teenager and it was really really hard and I'm not saying having experienced a pet grief would have made it easier but it's like at what point I mean everyone develops differently you know not all 16 year olds are the same not all 10 year olds are the same some are much more mature some are more capable of handling grief some will learn to handle things better with experience and so that idea of just completely taking away the amazing feeling and experience of being able to have and bond with a pet just because you don't want them to experience loss you're setting them up then for this complex of like well if something if it's going to turn out bad then I shouldn't do it and that's not what life is yeah that's not what you yeah I don't really I'm in two minds about this because I don't know what it's like to be a parent. And I think to a certain extent, if you are a parent, you have such a boundless, profound love for your child that you do have that irrational impulse to shield them from any kind of harm, any kind of emotional injury. And you may not think about what is the long-term abstract benefit of something. You may just think if you know my kid has a cat and they die... They're going to be completely devastated for, you know, however long, weeks potentially. And they foresee that and they imagine it and they they just can't do it. They can't bring themselves to it because you know that eventually the pet is going to die. Yeah. And so you know that it's inevitable that this is going to be inflicted upon your child. And so, yeah, on one hand, I do definitely appreciate that as a parent, that kind of protectiveness, whether or not it's reasonable in the grand scheme of things is just kind of part and parcel with the role but on the other hand i completely agree with you that you can't you have to let kids experience the bad sides of life when they're growing up a so that they know what it's like and they know that you can get through it and it's not the end of the world and they learn how you know they get these kind of coping mechanisms built into themselves before they reach adulthood and the really bad stuff happens and yeah like you said you can't i think that lesson of i mean i guess this would depend on whether or not you tell you explain to your child why you're not letting them have a pet and maybe some parents wouldn't even that would be you know a step too far for them but if you do explain to them that i'm not letting you have a cat because the cat's going to die and you're going to be sad and it's not worth it you are kind of giving them the lesson of I shouldn't do things if I know that there's going to be a difficult period at the end of them, even if there is joy and there is 
that emotional bond and there is that companionship during it if I know that it's going to be really hard when it ends I shouldn't even try I think that is definitely a damaging lesson but they may but like I said that may not be in play if you don't explain to the child if they just think it's surreptitious that they never had a pet because you know maybe mom wasn't a cat person and dad wasn't a dog person and so I never just I just never had a pet growing up maybe you can kind of circumvent that difficulty but yeah I don't know I feel like pets are a really special relationship they're not the same as humans and then for some people it's almost like you on a strange level you're closer with the pet than you are with certain humans they're there all the time they're not a person who can talk back but you do communicate with them and sometimes when you're on your own but the cats or the dogs in the house you don't feel alone they are this presence that kind of moves with you and I feel like you do create this really really special bond that you can't get from other things and I do think it's important if you are kind of if you do love animals and you do find yourself kind of wanting a pet, that kind of experience is invaluable, I feel. And if the pet does die, then it's just another learning experience for them. Like, I know that's hard to see when you're a mum. I'm not a mum. I can imagine what it's like to be a mum. I have a mum and I was a child. So my mum was also a young mum. And so I saw her learning things as she was trying to teach me things that's interesting and you know you're not always going to get it right but i never ever think that the answer is to just be like no keep them away from it then it's like the immune system you know when people say you shouldn't shield your baby from too many things because they have to they have to kind of build up their immune system. They have to be exposed to certain things in order to be able to fight certain things. And I feel like it's the same way for grief. Well, grief has the element to it where it feels like it's never going to end. It feels like it's something that you can't live through. It's so powerful. Yeah. It's so dauntingly infinite. Yeah, for some, well, for that's getting dark now, but some people <laughs> don't get through it. But most people do get through grief, even though in the moment it feels like this is something that is going to cloud over you forever. And I think kids do need to see that you can get through grief. Grief is horrible. It's one of the worst emotions, one of the worst mind states you can be in. But you do get through it and you are a stronger person afterwards. And there are positive things for getting through grief. Because afterwards, then you can remember the the person or the pet you lost fondly and you have all those memories. And then it's just, there is a positive upside, but kids have to go through, you know, maybe a smaller version of grief of losing a, a cat or a dog or whatever to see that that is, is possible. So that when they have the full version of grief, if they lose, say, a grandparent, then they know that this is something they're going to survive. Well, I think it's important to understand that grief is not something that stops or ends. I think for certain things, you know, maybe if someone dies that you didn't know very well or whatever, it can feel like a stopping point. But I think when it, you know, for the most part, if someone close to you dies, that grief stays with you forever. Grief is a cycle of emotions and not everyone goes through grief in the same order. 
Grief can stop and start just like waves and clouds and like the weather, like how it's all been described. And it can just hit you one day when you think, oh, I thought I'd grieved this years ago. Grief is this never-ending thing, and I think that's important to understand. And I do think the earlier you understand that, the better, because otherwise grief then is harder. If you don't really understand grief, you don't really understand the the feeling of loss and then you lose something, it's even harder to comprehend it. And I'm not saying the more you lose, the easier it is. I'm just saying it's always better to be able to understand things. And, you know, I've known, you know, people who have died and there have been young children involved and certain people have made decisions that the young children shouldn't go to the funeral. And I don't understand that at all. It's like, why? Do you think the funeral is going to be worse than the fact that their mother has died? Like, that's not how things work. I don't understand this, let's yank the children away and lock them in a dark room so that they don't have to kind of see certain things. The only way to learn and to grow is to experience. Um... If you're just constantly kind of sending the children away, not allowing them to have pets, not allowing them to attend the funeral, they aren't experiencing this cycle that they have to experience in order to overcome. You know, people always talk about closure. And in a sense, that's not really a real thing. But actually it is. There's a reason people need an end to things. You know, and for a lot of people, the end part of death and the beginning of grief is the funeral you know that's when you kind of take your next steps and say okay I've got to get through this now this is kind of my new life without that person and I need to try and understand how to navigate it and so I just feel like all these things are really important well it's not just grief it's grief is the after process of death but death itself teaches important lessons They're very hard lessons to bear and they can be very emotionally and psychologically trying, but they are valuable lessons. When a pet dies and you're confronted with the stark reality of death, you learn that the life forms that you interact with, whether they're animal or whether they're human, they're only around for a certain amount of time and death can come for them at any time. So you need to value the time you spend with them. You need to cherish them as people. Or as companions. Yeah, because at what other stage are you going to learn, really truly learn that that things die? Like, you know things die because you're taught it at some point by your parents and by, like, at school. But unless you see it, it's this faraway thing that happens in another world. But then when you actually see that, oh, my cat's not there anymore, you can try to kind of, like start to wrap your head around the fact that we're not all going to survive forever and while that seems like a really horrible dark thing for a child to learn there's a reason why you learn things early on because your mind is so open and free from all these things that it's the perfect time to put that in there you know they say that kids are really resilient and in one sense they are they can really kind of take things in the way, you know, an adult with all these experiences and set in certain ways can't kind of take things in. 
And so I think it's important to see and learn those things at an early age. You know, I'm not saying it's important that your pet dies when you're a child. I'm just saying I don't think these are bad experiences. Or wholly to have. bad experiences. Yeah. There are some upsides. Like I said, your cat might die when you're seven and it might be this horrible experience. But then afterwards you might start to cherish your time with your grandparents more because you know yeah. that you're more aware that they're not going to be around forever and so in that from that standpoint it's had a positive effect because now you're going to have a stronger deeper relationship with the people around you who matter the most because you've been taught the hard lesson that death is the end point of your relationship with whatever it is and so you've got to make the most of of your time with that person or that animal do you want to talk about our experiences with this because i feel like i don't have really an experience that mirrors this concept yeah i had when i was growing up i didn't really have pets the only pets i had were goldfish i had two goldfish and This is going to be kind of a funny slash dark story (laughs) now that I tell it in terms of what we've been saying. And it kind of shows that that maternal instinct that isn't always the most rational. But I didn't realize this until I was much older and my mom just straight up told me. But my goldfish died several times over. And by which I don't mean they were given CPR and then allowed to die again. I mean that the at some point I had an original pair of, of goldfish and then they died at some point. And mm. this is when I was a young kid. And my mom just replaced them with goldfish yeah. that looked the same, presumably because she didn't want to go through the, you know, yeah. the ordeal of, of telling me that they had died and having to deal with the emotional aftermath. And she must have done that several times over because these goldfish were like they were the Methuselah of the goldfish world because they lasted a long time and I never really questioned it because I think in my mind I didn't want it to be true that these that the goldfish had died at some point and been replaced by others and then they had died and been replaced and so I just kind of indulged the delusion because that was the easier path but maybe I should have been exposed to the truth when they originally died so that because i i like the goldfish a lot like (laughs) you know when you're a kid even something because a life form as simplistic as a goldfish you do have an emotional connection to it i'd see them every day when i came Uh they're in the kitchen in a little tank and so it definitely would have been a difficult thing to endure emotionally to find out that they were dead and especially if i discovered them like belly up man that would have been that would have been real difficult but the stakes are relatively low because it's a goldfish so maybe it would have been better to expose me to that and to make me more resilient as a as a result i don't know what was the better option my mom just chose one and now i have to to deal with whether that was good or bad i feel like that's definitely a classic you know wherein the parents kind of replace the fish or the hamster there are definitely levels you know things like hamsters and fish to some people are easily replaceable you can it's easier to kind of get ones that look the same you know hamsters and fish and stuff they don't really do a lot you know it's definitely different like you're a speciesist i've I've just (laughs) discovered it's definitely different to replacing a dog 
you know, because cats and dogs and things, you know, they have their own personalities usually. And, and so, and you bond with them in a different way. Maybe it's because you can get closer to them. I don't know, but you know, you can sleep with your dog. You know, you take your dog for walks. Your dog can basic can kind of tell you what they need, and you yeah. know they're more intelligent, so yeah. they're more kind of applicable in, yeah. as a companion, as as a friend. Fish and hamsters and stuff can't really do that. I feel like earlier I said I didn't really have many pets, but actually thinking back on it now, my first pet um, wasn't well. Let's start again. I didn't have a pet. I'd never had a pet, and then one day there was a cat in the house. And I recognised the cat from, like, around the way. <laughs> That's a weird statement, but sure. <laughs> the cat was called Lucky. And my mum briefly explained to me that the cat used to be the woman's downstairs, but she didn't want her anymore, so we had her. Man, this is dark. I remember seeing the cat only a few times and being terrified of the cat. Now... I should have prefaced this by saying I was terrified of everything when I was little. My mum tells stories of me being scared of grass. So I was very scared. All of a sudden there was this like little black cat who was like jumping around and I was like, no, it's going to jump on me. I have that one memory of the cat. And I was hiding behind my my mum or my dad and I was like, don't let it get me. So I don't feel like I bonded with the cat. Yeah. There was no, you know, I don't have any other memories of the cat. But then my first experience with death, as you could say, is the cat was pregnant and we didn't know. And I think that's probably why the woman gave it away. Because she knew. Listener, prepare yourself because I just realized what story this is. You need to harden yourself for the emotional impact of this story. So... We didn't know she was pregnant. No one knew she was pregnant. I'm assuming the woman knew and that's why she gave her away and didn't want to deal with it. I had, like, in my bedroom, I shared a bedroom with my brother, but I had, like, I was probably about six or seven at the time. I had in my wardrobe, there was, like, this tall box that was kind of like a dressing-up box where I'd have, like, you know when you're little and you have kind of, like, dressing-up clothes and it was full of, like, that and, like, teddy bears. Yeah. I remember putting my hand in to get something out and I picked up what I thought was a teddy bear and it was a dead kitten. And I don't think I realised my little six-year-old brain didn't fully understand what was going on. But there were lots of little dead kittens in the box. And I don't remember whether I was, like, sad afterwards or whether... I think you're probably just stunned. Yeah, I think I probably was. My mom like explained it to me, and then that was that. Really, I had not bonded with the cat. I didn't know the cat was pregnant, and so this was a different kind of, you know, it's more kind of shocking than yeah. devastating because it's so surprising and bizarre. And then I didn't have pets, and I don't know why. I don't know if that was anything to do with it. Maybe what my mom saw in me. Maybe she didn't want to risk yeah. seeing that again. I don't know. And then, and then, so my real first memory of having a pet and it dying was the same as you. It was fish, except no one covered it up for me. No, they just gave you the hard. <laughs> I the came hard home reality. from school and one of them was dead. I had two, just two little fish in a in a fish bowl, and 
it had that thing, that like tail disease that they get, that as soon as one gets it, they all get it. And my nan was just like, I flushed it down the toilet. She oh, was really man. like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really rough. just like, you know, blase about it. And I was like, but my fish. Yeah, to you, it was a huge deal, but to other people, yeah. it's just like a fish. And I used to sit at this fish bowl and just stare at them going around and around. Because fish are fascinating around. when you're a kid. Yeah. I wanted to touch the fish. A yeah. few times I tried to put my hand in and touch the fish. And that's how you lost your hand, right? Because they were piranhas. <laughs> we should mention that Sam only has one hand in case that no. wasn't clear. <laughs> so I remember that being really sad. And then I feel like I'm mucking them up now. And then I had rabbits. But I do feel like having had kind of different levels of pets if that makes sense because my next pet that I had was a rabbit and eventually my rabbit died and it was a case where I didn't see the rabbit die I didn't see the rabbit dead I came home one night from a sleepover and my mum was like you know she sat me down and she told me that you know originally I called the rabbit thumper and that is adorable and (laughs) it was a little white rabbit heartbreaking that sadly thumper had died I think he had a stroke I think which is common in rabbits because it happened again your mom like a diagnostician for rabbits (laughs) and um, an autopsy well yeah they didn't just like bury it in the garden they took it to the vet and the vet did, like, a post-mortem on it? No, the vet was probably just, like, it seems like the rabbit had a stroke. I feel like that's just what they say when... Maybe, I mean... When it, yeah, it's died and they just maybe. want to give you a general answer. And that was really sad and shocking. But again, I don't remember being, like, devastated. And then when I was about 17, I was still living at home. And we got a cat. And this was our first real pet. His name was George. He was a little, little orange ginger cat. He was feisty. Even though he was feisty and he liked to scratch you and bite you, he was, you know, loving. He was our cat. He was amazing. And um, then I remember when I was about 23, 24, um, he got sick. It was like a problem with his urinary tract, like which is really common in boy cats. We didn't know. And um, it, he had a series of like going to the vets, trying to fix it, coming home, then he was sick again. So I saw this development very from very early on. I saw him get sick. I saw the change in his behaviour. I went to the vets with him when he was unwell. You know, I remember not wanting to leave the vets because he was just, they put you just in a row of cages with all these other cats. And it's like, I don't want to leave you. Um, You're there when he comes home. You're there when he gets sick again. And then eventually they say, he's too sick. He's not getting better. We need to put him down. And then I was there when they did it. And I was there when he was dead. And I saw him when he was dead. And that was my first, like, experience of having a pet be actually dead in front of me. And I was, like, 23, 24. And it was one of the most devastating things I've ever experienced. It was horrible. It was truly, truly horrible. And and the thought of a child having to experience that does really upset me. And I do want to kind of like be like, no, they don't need to experience it yet. 
But then I think about all those other instances and I don't feel devastated by them and I don't know if that's because of the different levels of kind of petness, if you know what I mean, or if it's just because I was younger. But yeah. Maybe those kind of hardened you to loss without you realising it. Maybe that's what happens yeah, when they do their job. hardening me is the right word, but I feel Prepares like... Prepares you. I, almost like there were levels. It started off very small. It was a pet I didn't know. Then it was fish. Then it was a rabbit. Maybe it was because, it, you know, it, or it was a combination of those things. I'm just saying I don't like the idea of these things being taken away from you just in case something bad happens. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I had a dog for kind of most of my teenage years when I still lived at my family home. And the bond that I developed with my dog, and I, I'm not speaking about him in the past tense because he's still alive. I just don't see him very much anymore. Um, I just, I think about if I'd been like 10... And I'd had that connection with my dog. And then he had suddenly died. Like you said, I just feel like it would be earth shattering. And I think about that and I'm like, I'm glad that didn't happen because I don't know whether I would have gotten through it. But maybe I'm frightened of that because if I had gone through it, I would know that I would come through the other side. And maybe if I had gone through it, I'd be less frightened of, say, God forbid, Rudy dying. Yeah. Because I am terrified of Rudy dying. Me too. Because I can't almost can't even think about it. It's like yeah. I try to focus my mind's spotlight on the possibility yeah. and there's it's just my mind refuses, my mind books. And I don't know what that's going to be like. I can imagine it in kind of abstract, kind of dispassionate terms, but the reality is going to be so much worse than I imagine. And I don't know whether it might have been better for me to have lost a more advanced pet, like a dog or a cat, when I was younger to prepare me for it in adulthood. And I'll never know. And there's no way to run the experiment twice. There's not two of me. So all I can, all I'll be able to say is when Rudy dies, it is going to be just devastating. It's going to be like an emotional cataclysm, but I don't, I can't say whether I, would have handled it better or whether it would have affected me less if I'd had that experience growing up because I I can't know both ways. I feel like there's a sweet spot. There's like that number of years when you're a kid because there's like when you're a teenager and it's like everything is the end of the world and everything is so dramatic. But when you're an actual kid before that, you know, like maybe between the ages of like six and ten or something, there's that magic spot where it's almost like you can handle anything where kids can get over things really fast and like they learn in this really magical way of just like things are very literal you know and I don't know if kind of learning those things and having those experiences at at an age such as that is like Easier. Easier or more helpful to you. I don't know. I don't want us to feel like we're saying having the experience of death is going to make things easier. And I don't even really... I feel like I came into this conversation really knowing what my stance was reading this article. Because talking about it and remembering how sad I was about certain things. 
even though I wasn't necessarily a child in that moment, like when George died, like, I think it's just always going to be hard. It's always going to be hard and it's always going to be horrible, but I just don't think the, I, even though those animals died, I'm not thinking, but that wouldn't have happened if I didn't have the animal and I wouldn't have had to go through that. I think the relationship and the reward that you get from having that animal or that relationship is by far, even though grief and loss is devastating, the reward you get from the years you have with that animal by far outweighs it. It's like, because I don't ever want to get, it's like when people are scared to get into relationships because they've previously been hurt. It's like, well, nothing's worth, it's not worth being alone. Like, what are you going to, you're just going to be alone forever because you don't want to get hurt? Some people are that way. But more often than not, people jump back into relationships because they see that the reward is much more fulfilling and much just more... It counterweighs the downside greatly and so even though there is that kind of you know because it's like saying well okay i'm not gonna get my child pet but what if like their friend at school dies you know what you know they're going to experience loss in lots of different ways you can even experience loss and what feels like grief when someone breaks up with you when a friend doesn't want to be your friend anymore Because all it is is that thing or that person being there and then that thing or that person not being there anymore. And you experience that in lots of different ways. And I don't think the answer is ever, well, let's just not do it. Let's just not let her have that experience. Like you said, there is that kind of sweet spot when you're a child. And I don't know where it is. Maybe child psychologists have figured it out. But from my experience, I feel like Maybe up until I was like 10, you, the world, so much of the world still seems alien to you, where you look around every day and you see new things and you're figuring new things out. You don't wake up knowing what's going to happen or knowing what could happen, all the possibilities. You wake up and you feel like some stuff is going to happen today and it's all going to be surprising and I'm going to add it to my knowledge base of what the world's like so you're just kind of rolling with the punches and you're surprised by everything but you're not surprised that you're surprised because you know that you don't know you don't understand the world the world is still kind of strange to you and so I feel at that point if you lose a pet it's devastating but it's like this is just a thing I didn't expect this was going to happen, of course, because I don't know about death. But this is just another surprise that the world has sprung on me. But once you reach kind of your teenage years, you're, at least from your perspective, you feel like your understanding of the world has kind of cemented. You feel like you get what is going on. You kind of comprehend all the potential possibilities that could happen. And you have all these new ways of feelings and these new hormones and these new you know, reasons for living, if you know what I mean. And so when a pet dies and it kind of shakes up the formula and it shows you that you don't understand the world and that the world can still spring these cruel surprises upon you, I think it's even more devastating because you felt like you 
had got a grip on what was going on. You felt like everything had kind of been nailed down in your mind. And then there's this upheaval where everything is tossed on its head and you're showing that something that you thought, or at least you had this kind of subconscious assumption because it was emotionally self-serving that this was going to be around forever. This pet, this companion, this friend, the world shows you that it can take it from you at any time. I feel like you explained that really well. That's what I was trying to say with the sweet spot. It's like while you're learning and trying to kind of understand things, it's much kind of like not easier, but it just kind of seems to to fit better. And so that's why I tend to lean towards, no, learning it or experiencing it, the younger, the better. Because you're more adaptable. Exactly. And I, I just think that's, you're also learning to kind of, form these bonds at a younger age which is only going to enrich your life the more as you get older it's not going to hinder you man it's just <laughs> yeah i can't imagine like i often have i'm a catastrophizer as they like to say and i you know do have bad thoughts sometimes you know one thing leads to another and all of a sudden rudy's died and i'm like what what will I do? I can't imagine. I just can't imagine. That's definitely the the strongest bond I've ever had with a pet. He's my child. Yeah. He for sure is my child. And I just can't imagine it. So he's going to live to be the oldest cat ever. <laughs> yeah, he's going <laughs> to. And that's that, okay? <laughs> he's going to be a ripe old age of 50. Yeah. He's going to be collecting his pension. Uh-huh. You're going to be going to the matinee showings of Casablanca and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, talk. That's the thing. Talking about death or thinking about death, contemplating it in in real depth and detail, it is such a horrible thing even to think about. That and it does kind of arrest you and sober you and put you in that kind of dark place, and it kind of dampens your mood. But it's so important that you think about it so that you can work work through it in your mind. But you have to counterbalance it with, if you think about death all the time, then it's paralyzing and it re- seems to remove all point of doing anything because you just feel like anyone can die at any second. Everyone I know is going to be dead in 100 years. Everything I do is just going to fade in the face of eternity. So there needs to be a counterbalance where you think about death sometimes so that it kind of galvanizes you in your life. It makes you feel like I've got to get stuff done now. I've got to leave my mark. I've got to tell the people I love that I love them. But not you don't want to think about death so much that it has that overwhelmingly negative effect on your life and prevents you from doing anything. Well, I feel like in in many ways, death is really incomprehensible. Even when you know it and you've seen it and you've experienced it, I feel like trying to comprehend death and understand it and just have it be this real thing, you have to kind of almost acknowledge it all the time. Like, it's this constant thing that you're like, shit, I am going to die at some point. Or I know someone who knows someone who died and it's like, fuck, death is real. Like, you know it's real, of course, like, and you experience loss in many ways over and over again, but 
I do definitely feel like it is something you have to constantly come to terms with. That it's this thing that's not going away. For everything and everyone, it's going to happen at some point. And it's really just difficult to to deal with, to understand. It's when you allow yourself to become complacent and you forget about the reality of death. When someone does die or a pet dies, then it hits you, you know, doubly hard, triply hard, because you'd kind of lost sight of that reality. It kind of always needs to be in the background of your mind that you do need to take advantage of opportunities and you do need to take advantage of the people around you in terms of their company, like telling them that you love them, cherishing um, your time with them. Because if you don't and you take them for granted, it's going to be even worse if the worst does happen and they die. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So the message, podcast listener, is hug your pets. <laughs> I just imagined... Take lots of selfies with your pets. Across the world, there was a spontaneous outbreak of... Yeah. Pet hugging. Across the world of all our millions of listeners. Some guy hugs his <laughs> anaconda and is strangled to death. No, Don't hug your horrible. pet if they have the ability to strangle you. That's a good maxim for life. <laughs> so, yeah. Should we move on? Yeah. Okay, so let's take a breather. That was that <sighs> was just take a, uh, that was an sorry. intense one, yeah. Okay, so the article I read was on the New Yorker. It was entitled A New Terror Alert System. I actually read it a little while ago, but I started thinking about it again recently. It basically details how in the aftermath of the New York explosion where there was a bomb in the dumpster on like a crowded New York City street. They sent out a text message to everyone in New York using the same system they have in place for sending out alerts for like inclement weather or natural disasters or some kind of terrorist attack. And it was basically a digital wanted poster in the Mm. guise of a text message. So it said, we're looking for this guy, this is his name, this is his age, this is the location, contact us if you have any information. And apparently that's the first time that that alert system, which is built into the phone networks in the US, has been used to send out basically a wanted poster. And so I thought that was interesting enough on its own. And also because at the press conference when they announced that they'd caught the guy, the people speaking basically made a big deal out of how helpful this had been to them. And they were basically saying it's the future and we're going to be using this more and more. So I thought that was interesting enough by itself. But it also got me thinking about how more and more in this, you know, post 9-11 world, I used air quotes, but you couldn't see. Um <laughs> The government is going to be passively conscripting people in its law enforcement capacity. For example, I was thinking about how, I don't know if you know this, but in the US, attached to telephone poles and lampposts and stuff like that in high crime inner city areas, they have these listening devices that It's basically a microphone that only listens for the audio pattern of gunshots. And when it hears gunshots, it uses the nearby posts to triangulate 
the likely location of the gunshots and then it sends that information to the police who I guess then send out a squad car to investigate and see what's going on. And apparently this has been going on for a while now. And it got me thinking, say in the UK, if the government announced that from now on, every phone sold in the UK is going to have this additional microphone installed in it. It doesn't listen to your conversations. It doesn't record any of that. It is basically designed to pick up on the audio pattern of gunshots. And when it hears gunshots, it takes a snapshot, say it uses your phone camera to take a picture. It records the audio from then on and it notes down the GPS information and it sends all that stuff to the police so they can come and investigate. And it got me thinking about how people would react if that was a thing. Because there's already so many ways that we are passively surveilled people don't really think about how much of our lives are recorded on things like cctv like if you leave your house and you go into you know a heavily built up area like you know your downtown city center where you know it's mostly businesses chances are that every step you take is being recorded by some kind of camera whether it's the cctv on the outside of businesses whether it's the the cameras that are on lampposts that the police use, you are being recorded most of the time and you don't really have a say in that. People have just come to accept that. So I just started thinking about if something like that system I just described was implemented, how much would people resist it and how long would it take before something like that becomes commonplace, becomes accepted because it's a very passive way for the government to keep tabs on crime, to keep tabs on terrorism and things Mm. like that. I feel like we're being watched in more ways than that as well. Just in terms of, like, the internet. We're not necessarily being watched, but we're being monitored. You know, people can access our internet history, the things that we use. And then, of course, there's always, you know... The thing about whether they can see you through your camera and whether that's like the government or the hackers or whatever. Like you can be seen or heard via things that you don't necessarily think you can. So we are definitely being watched by more than ever and more by more things than we realise. The phone thing, if they decided to do that, I don't think that would happen. I think there would be like mass protests. While it sounds good in theory, no, no we're just gonna, things are only gonna get listened to if shots are detected. Well, no, because actually you have the capability of listening to everything I do. How do I know you're not listening to everything I do? Then it's like, well, what if, They start using it for other things, like they suspect you of a crime. They can just start listening to your phone. There would be no boundaries. It would start as this and then it would quickly become, well, we broke the case because we used our such and such system that we used to detect gunfire, but actually that's how we got them. Like, you know, and can you 
And there's no way to opt in or opt out. The only way you could not do it is if you don't have a phone. So I don't think that would happen. Well, I think the argument would be that, like I said, I think I'm positing it as a hypothetical in the UK because in the US it wouldn't work because there are lawful ways to, there is a lot of lawful use of guns there. Yeah. Like you, you'd get so many false positives from people just going to the gun range and, you know, doing target practice with their guns. Or, you know, I guess I didn't think about, I guess if you were listening to an action movie and there were gunshots on the TV, maybe that would register as a false positive. But it was just, my point is more so that more and more, I think the government is going to find ways to make people more comfortable with the idea that they are at least to some extent, part of the government's ability to track crime and terrorism. I don't think anyone will have complained that they got this text saying, we're looking for this guy, we suspect him of the bombing. But it is, in a way, an intrusion in your life. They know that everyone's going to get this because basically everyone has a phone and everyone checks their phone at least semi-regularly. So they know that they are going to have interrupted what you're doing and got you to become more vigilant. Everyone who saw that text, you know that for the next hour or two, they're going to be thinking about it, thinking about how will I know if this guy's around me? Should I be, you know, paying more attention to that guy over there with the rucksack? Like, even though it's a small thing and it is relatively unintrusive, it is still the government extending themselves into your lives to help them track down a suspect. And I just think more and more they're going to try and push the boundaries in how they kind of passively conscript you into their efforts. And I don't think there's going to be as much resistance as as you think there is. Well, the idea that like there's this text alert sounds really, it's like, wow, they sent out this text to everyone and it was like this one did and, and you know, it may or may not have helped and that's really good. But it's like news you can't opt out of. Because, like, you you know, lots of people get their news. They might get email alerts daily or, you know, they get their news when they choose to get their news. They turn on the TV, they look at a website, they open a newspaper. But this is news you can't opt out of. Because a text message is the most kind of... um Intimate's not the right word, but it's like... Well, they know that people are going to have their phones on their person. Uh, and so it's yeah. like literally like something on your person notifies you of what the government is trying well, to tell you. Well, I feel you. like texts are what you go to first. Texts yeah. are more personal. Emails you might not check for days, but like texts, you're going to open it. And so it's definitely like it is kind of an intrusion. It's forcing you to see what's going on when you might not want to see what's going on. You know, there's no kind of law that says you have to keep up with the events that are going on. Whereas if they start, you know... Forcing you Again, to it's attention. a line. It's like, when do we use this text thing? Is it just for kind of like terror alerts? Or actually, no, you know what this texting might be good for? Amber alerts when a child goes missing because that's pretty serious too. And then, oh, you know what else it might be good for? And then next thing you know, you're getting three texts a day, every day from like the government. That's definitely like not going to be okay. I'm pretty sure. 
Whereas a lot of people aren't going to care. I definitely think like millennials and younger people are going to care. They're not going to want that kind of intrusion. Because then it's more like the world has become this place where even more the government's telling you what you should be doing. And in this case, it's the government's telling you, you have to know this information and you have to help us. And so, you know, the text thing, if it's like, you know, a weather thing that, you know, might turn into a natural disaster or a terror alert, I think that that's okay because they're not as common. But when it just comes to kind of like everyday crime, I don't think that's going to fly, to be honest. Well, I just think that everyone right now is so hyper-aware and hypersensitive about the ever-expanding reach of the surveillance state. But I think that people are looking at it from the wrong perspective because everyone's waiting for the 1984 type of tyrannical intrusion into your lives, this kind of these active effects in how you go about your daily life and how the government is going to coerce you into doing things you don't want to do or is going to be affecting you in some noticeable negative way. But I think much more likely is that there are going to be these programs where it's just passively using the public as kind of a crowdsourced eyes and ears. Another example that I was thinking about With the rise of things like Google Glass, I can foresee a point in the future where everyone has something like that, one of those wearables with a camera in. And then say the government says, everyone that buys this from now on, there's going to be this software installed where it scans everyone's face that you pass. We don't record any of the data, but every so often we'll send this software a face that we need urgently because they're a a suspect for a an act of terrorism or something like that. And if you are walking by someone in the street and it picks up their face as this exact face we're looking for, it sends us the GPS data and that's it. You may not even ever know that you helped us, but then we'll send some squad cars to pick up this guy. And that way, terrorism suspects will never have a place to hide because as soon as they go outside and come into contact with other people, they're going to be picked up by this program and i think that people at first would have a negative reaction to that but like i said eventually and especially if the government was to do this in the wake of a terrorist attack we all know that after 9-11 they were able to push things through that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to because the country was in a state of mourning and it was in a state of hyper paranoia and it was in a state of anger it wanted some kind of reprisal I think if the government wants to do something like I was just describing in the wake of a terrorist attack, when people are more kind of malleable in terms of their principles, in terms of the willingness to allow the government more and more power, eventually I think the government could erode people's resistance to it. And then 10 years down the line, no one would even notice it. No one would even mention it anymore because people would just get used to it because it's not affecting their lives. As long as you don't inconvenience people... I think they're willing to put up with more than you'd think. I think as well, we forget that like certain things weren't normal, like they are normal today. Like if you'd have said that like everyone's going to have a camera on their phone, everyone's going to have um, access to the internet straight like, at the fingertips, 
there are going to be cameras ev- like everywhere, basically. Um, I don't think, you know, and every- and all that stuff that came out with like the NSA, like, I think it's like we forget our reactions to things and how, you know, we might have kind of protested against things. So I can see, I can see it from your point of view, actually. Like, if you can just kind of fast forward through that bit to a point where it is kind of an everyday thing, you know, everyone is wearing these things and, you know, we can track people. It's like when you see, like, futuristic movies, you know at some point the world is going to be like that. It's just kind of getting there. I don't know. I feel like it will always come down to where do you cross the line. It will always be about how much you trust. I think these things will have to be transparent. Like we, anyone can access, um, the the bill or whatever you want to call it, <clears throat> the law, and know exactly what's detailed. And if, because I can imagine, you know, lots of people then filing lawsuits over like, I was seen on someone's Google Glass, like because they're gonna say that they're not watching things. But then it'll be, oh, such and such was caught on Google Glass, like, doing such and such. We weren't actually searching for them, but we saw them. You know, you have to obviously report it if you see it or whatever. So there's always going to be a line. and there's always It's always going to come down to whether you trust it or not. And I think even if it ends up being, it ends up becoming that, and in the future it's, like, a common thing, I think there's always going to be sects of people who, like, are fighting against it. I think that's where we're trending towards, though. Because right now, we there's already so much technology on the average person that can be used if the government is able to intrude into those devices and kind of hijack them for their own nefarious plans. For example, your phone has... A lot of phones have two cameras, front and back. It mm. also has a microphone. It also has a GPS sensor. Just that alone, if you think about someone hijacking that, and like I said, most people have their phone on them all the time. All the time Everywhere yeah. they go, they take it to the bathroom. They take it to, you know, whatever, a funeral. That's they so take true. it. They take it everywhere. If you think about how much information a device like a phone can record, like, and so mm. much high highly detailed highly intimate information and then you think about the rise of wearable technology is really just at the beginning stages of it who knows where it's going to go when it kind of reaches its zenith people might be wearing 10 or more different pieces of technology Mm. that can record information about them and around them if you think about that eventuality you realize that the government is going to have like i said they're going to be able to use their own population as information-gathering devices that can record a lot of high-quality information. And so they are going to have eyes and ears everywhere. And I think people need to start thinking more and more about the implications of that because we're already so close to a total surveillance state when you think about the behind-closed-doors programs that the intelligence agencies have going right now. And that is based on the technology we have at the moment which is you know relatively minimal it's strange to think about in like movies and things like 
when you're talking about like those backdoor like programs and stuff and what software they have it's strange to think about like what's actually true and what's not true and what are they doing with the technologies they have because in a way you'd think the type of things they could do in terms of like tapping into someone's phone to try and get the information around them you'd think that would have come further but another thing that I thought of when you were speaking is, and something that you're always going to come across with technology is, for example, that thing that you talked about with Google Glass. Well, what if someone hacks into it and they can see what the government's searching for? They can see the faces that they've been searching for. And then it kind of becomes like hacking into it. You know, you've seen that person. Maybe they live in your area. And then it might become like a vigilante type of situation. Where, like, you know, hacker groups have hacked in and they've found where such and such lives. And, you know, we've already seen just with the internet on Reddit, for instance, you've seen when they can find people and, like, post all their information and stuff. It can get really dangerous when you involve the public. And so I think that's what you'd be up against. Well, to go back to what I was originally saying and what originally sparked this contemplation for me... That warning poster they sent out by text message, a lot of people pushed back against that and the idea of it because they felt like it will spark a panic. It will make people target those around them that they suspect of being this guy and then lead to kind of cases of vigilante violence against people suspected of fitting the profile. So, yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword because... Although you do get the public's help in finding this person, you can also cause a certain amount of chaos and disruption in in so many people's lives by putting them on edge, by putting them in this hypervigilant mode of suspecting everyone who goes past and starting to feel unsafe, uneasy in their, you know, their homes, their cities, their towns, whatever. You remind them in a very like unignorable way in a way that confronts them and their lives, that the guy who did this bombing could be anywhere around them, could be plotting the next bombing, you know, the next street away. Yeah. And you cause that kind of emotional turmoil. And that in itself can cause negative repercussions in a community. And maybe that counterweighs catching the guy a couple of hours sooner than you would have because you sent out this text to that. Yeah. I agree. Because it's like, at what point is it a bonus that you have the extra kind of help? It's got to really far outweigh what you already have, I think. So, yeah. (laughs) That was an interesting discussion (laughs) about the way things are going it's pretty and after that discussion about death yeah i'm sure everyone is particularly upbeat uplifted <laughs> it's definitely interesting to think about what the future might be in terms of um technology well, i think you've kind of got to catastrophize to a certain extent so that you can make efforts to avoid the worst case yeah. scenario if you just have kind of a rosy view of how things are going to progress you get complacent and you don't try to combat the way that things can head towards the dystopic. <laughs> so, yeah, what's what's your next topic? So, yeah, so I saw an article in the New York Times, <clears throat> and it's titled, Am I Introverted or Just Rude? 
And it's funny because this topic I actually read first, quickly discarded after reading like the first or like first or second paragraph. Then you came to me with it and I was like, oh, that's strange because I was going to talk about that. So I went back and read it and I totally understand why you wanted to talk about this because even though it does kind of say it in the title about, you know, am I just rude, the article definitely didn't go the way I thought it was going to go. You know, she starts off talking about how she's an introvert but she's not, you know, doesn't have like clinical social anxiety she's just kind of you know that's just her personality a, type. a general you know yeah and um but quickly turns on herself and basically says that she's you know she shames herself and says that basically it all comes down to you being selfish and not putting the needs of others before your own and so it kind of shocked me it really kind of shocked me and not really much shocks me to be honest and <clears throat> I just don't understand how yeah like there's different levels of like introvertedness if we can say that that's a word and of course there are other things that go along with that like social anxiety and <clears throat> you know and speaking as someone who is kind of introverted and also does have anxiety. I just can't comprehend that kind of thought of like constantly having to do... Th we are definitely come from places of not doing things we don't want to do. Like, you know, occasionally there are things that you do that you don't really want to do, but to constantly put other people before yourself, that's not selfless. That's like, that's being a hindrance to yourself. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's not. It's never good when you putting someone else first in a relatively minor way, like go into a party when you don't want to because you don't know anyone there and you know it's going to flare up your social anxiety because you're going to have to talk to new people. You're going to be surrounded by strangers and it's going to, you're going to be out of your element. When forcing yourself to do that, to go there, is a huge emotional drain to you. Yeah. But it's only going to, you know, it's going to barely be a blip on the party host radar. They're going to see that you came in. They're going to yeah. nod to you, come over and talk to you for a second and be like, oh, okay, he came. And then they're going to forget about it for the rest of, of the night. To them, it's such a small benefit that you overcame the difficulty and actually arrived at the party. But to you, it was such a, a huge thing that it doesn't make sense to do that regularly yeah. because... It's not a fair transaction. It, it's it, not a fair sacrifice. Exactly. It affects you or it can affect you depending on your level of kind of introvertedness or anxiety. It can affect you for days. I mean, you know, the work up. I know if I'm anxious about something, like whether it's leaving the house or going to a specific event or meeting up with someone, I have to work myself up to it. I have to kind of get in the zone. I have to either fight off anxiety or, you know, sometimes I actually do have a panic attack. Then I have to fight it off every moment on the way there. And then when I'm there, shit, I've got to think of things to talk about. I've got to keep the conversation going. I've got to stop myself from looking weird because I'm so shy. And this is not a case of, oh, she's shy, let's break her out of a, out of a shell. Oh, she's a bit of a wallflower, but she just needs kind of to fit in with the right people. 
you can be introverted and have like that social anxiety with your best friend you know maybe it's at its kind of weakest level when you're with your best friend but it's still there it's not something that just goes away you know and so when she talks about um just making more of an effort and not being at the mercy of her nature. It really, really fucking annoyed me. Because it's like, no, I don't think you really... And when it comes to... It's just getting me so mad. And when it comes to like... Okay, we're talking about a party. You were talking about how the benefit and the reward or whatever. If it's a party and there's going to be like 50 people or more there, you know... The chances of you speaking to the host, the person that's made you go for longer than like 10 minutes or short bursts throughout the night isn't very high. And so, especially in those situations, it's like, you want me to come to the party, but I'm not going to see you. I'm going to be made uncomfortable. It's going to be crap. Why don't we just meet up in a few days? And that's how you keep the relationship going. Then if it's like, you know, an isolated thing or it's like your close friends they should already know that you're introverted they should already know that these things are massive deal to you and so unless it is really like special occasion you shouldn't be constantly prodding them to change who they are that's not what friends do yeah you have to strike a balance in terms of for me personally i know that like i said i don't think it's healthy to put yourself in that difficult situation constantly if it's small, trivial get-togethers that aren't very important in the grand scheme of things. But sometimes you do do it because it is important events where it really is going to matter whether you go or not. And so you find a way to swallow your anxiety and to put on a brave face and go and, and talk to people, even though it's difficult, even though it's emotionally draining. You do it because it's important. But I think the rest of the time, like you said... There are compromises to be made. You can say to people, I won't be able to enjoy myself at this party. I think I'm probably just going to stand there by myself on my phone because my social anxiety is just going to be paralyzing. I'm not trying to blow you off. It's not that I don't like Mm. you. Can we possibly meet up and go and, you know, have a conversation at a Starbucks or whatever? Or, you know, you can Skype me or we can go shopping or whatever you can do something else where it's a one-on-one and you're not going to have to deal with that constant background noise of social anxiety which is clouding your thoughts and stopping you from having real conversations from having real social contact so i think it's fair to say that both people should be comfortable in the situation and so there is a middle ground to be found in a lot of these situations And it's not just social anxiety. Like, when you're an introvert, things like parties where there's, like, loads of people, they're not comfortable and they're not fun. And so it's not just about trying to push yourself out of being uncomfortable. They're not fun. The only people they're fun for are the people that, you know, have thrown the party, extroverts who like to be among that many people so i don't know why your friend would want you to do something that's not fun that's when you have kind of different friends for different activities do you know what i mean yeah also now a relationship hasn't got to be this constant let's go out and do something you can you know further your relationship and strengthen your relationship you can you know talk via text you can have video chats you can skype you could you know what i mean it hasn't always got to be this let's meet up and have there be 25 other yeah, people some around kind of big us. event 
And so I feel like there are all these different levels of it. But what it comes down to is, you you know, people say you have to make compromise and put your, you know, other people first sometimes. And that's true. That is true. I like to think that I'm a kind person. I'm an empathetic person. I do put other people before myself in a lot of situations. But if you constantly do that, then you are not putting your best self forward because your best self is not the self that's at this place where there's loads of people or at this formal event. And you feel awkward. If you want the best of me, then the compromise doesn't have, shouldn't be make me do something I don't want to do. If you're an extrovert, you've got every chance of them being able to bend to you. So I feel like people are looking at it the opposite way. It shouldn't be, you know, there's this constant people need to get off their phones and off the internet and just have more contact. No, because a lot of people don't want that. A lot of people aren't more comfortable with that. And actually, I think you'll find that a lot of people talk more via that kind of mode of like texting and email and stuff you know you've got to get yourself to a comfortable place you've got to find the right people for you and if you do find that you are constantly putting yourself in positions of like this is not comfortable I don't like this this is not my scene then maybe you need new friends or you need to say to your current ones look this is not me I don't want to do this. I don't have fun. If you want to still be my buddy, then maybe we can do some stuff I want to do. You know? And people aren't always like that. People do constantly just think, oh, but there's all these social rules that I have to... And they're like these unwritten rules that, like... I don't know. It's just really strange. Yeah. And I think why we both got kind of angry reading this article and we chafed against her conclusion was that she does try to speak on behalf of introverts in general. Instead of yeah. saying, this is my experience as an introvert and this is how I've discovered I can deal with things or not deal with things and what the implications of those choices are. She kind of just says, if you're an introvert, it's selfish to constantly be saying to people, yeah. I don't want to go to these social gatherings because I'm not going to be comfortable and I'm going to act in a way that I otherwise wouldn't because I have this awkwardness, this anxiety. I'm laughing because at one point she says something how it's breaking up society. Yeah, she's a bit melodramatic. Yeah, introverts are the cause of, like, you know, society's breakdown. We've made it fragmented because we just want to kind of be on our own, in our own spaces. But what is life if you can't just have your own fucking space? You can't just go home and be like, no... I don't understand that that weird stigma around, like, homebodies. Oh, she's a hermit. Well, so fucking what? Like, I'm happiest when I'm, like, at home with you. I have all my stuff, you know. And stuff is a lot these days. It's not just watching TV. It's reading, listening to music, playing games, like, interacting in so many different ways via the internet. It's not the same as it once was, you know. So I think people need to kind of let go of that. Yeah. There's that weird kind of privileging of the way that we have interacted socially in the past. Like this idea that 
to like talking to someone in person, say like on, say if you and I are sitting on the couch talking to each other face to face, that is somehow inherently and significantly better than if we were, you know, FaceTiming or Skyping, yeah. like video chat. And ultimately the difference is fairly negligible, I think. Yeah. Like there are cues like, you know, body language and things like that that you can't necessarily pick up in video chat but ultimately you are face to face you're seeing each other you're seeing how the other person reacts and you're talking to each other and i don't see why the old way is necessarily better or healthier than the new way they're just different well i think it comes down to contact and touch but that's really reserved for like your partner do you know what i mean and presumably you are going to see them in person so like you know and you don't need that when it comes to just, like, your buddies or whatever, especially if they're not, like, your best friends. Like, I don't understand why people can't... So one of these as well, I think, because maybe people don't find that they're as articulate when they type or they feel like they can get away with more in person because they can use that body language. And so, you know, and there's a lot of people who don't feel like they can spell the best or... And so a lot of people prefer not to type or whatever. And I get that. But that's the exact same thing as an introvert or someone with social anxiety being in person. They feel they can articulate better in text or communication via the phone. Or one-on-one or social one on one. When it's a group of people and you're trying to navigate a conversation, it's really, it's hard. I mean, I am like outgoing introvert if that makes sense i am an introvert and i'm more comfortable when i'm introverted but sometimes what happens when i'm with people in public the level of anxiety and nerves that i feel instead of i mean it does push me to run away sometimes but instead of it pushing me to run away what happens is it pushes me out it pushes me out so far that i actually end up being the center of things because I end up kind of being this, like, loud, like... You overcompensate yeah. for your... so I overcompensate, and then everyone's looking at me, and everyone's like, okay, what's she going to say next? I'm like, no, I don't want this, yeah. I don't want this, I want to run away. I don't understand how people think I'm now this person. And that's also what can happen. And it's really scary, because yeah. when there's, like, six people in a friend group or whatever, and you're trying to kind of make people laugh, and you're trying to, like, make the conversation go forward, you know... You want to just say those weird things that pop into your head, but it's hard because you're trying to think of all these rules, all these unspoken rules. Yeah. You don't want to draw the attention to yourself, but you also don't want to draw attention to the fact that you're trying to, you know, avoid conversation or just interject when you feel like you have something good to say. It's it's a weird balance to strike. It's like you don't want to seem like weird and too quiet and too shy. So you talk and talk and talk and talk. My thing is filling the silence. I'm worried about what the silence will say. Not so much anymore, but like a few years ago, I would just fill the silence because I was worried about what the silence said. Now I'm more at peace with just letting things be quiet. If things need to be weird for a minute, they need to be weird. But yeah, so this woman kind of just did my head in a little bit and I just needed to talk it out. Yeah. Well, like I said, she can really only speak for her own particular brand of being introverted. And she doesn't really, if she does realize it, she doesn't 
make a disclaimer explaining that that is kind of the subtext to what she's saying that she's only speaking for herself and her own experiences mm. for me i completely disagreed with what she said because i'm not the same type of introvert as she is the way that she described the phenomenon as it manifests itself in her social life she basically seems like she can kind of overcome that instinct towards seclusion if she tries hard enough and she can do that at will and you know ad nauseum for me i remember one time i saw something which really crystallized my own experience of being an introvert and really gave me a way to articulate it and to think about it i saw someone basically say that when they are in big social situations where there's a lot of people and you have to converse with new people and you have to kind of make that effort to be around people and to seem normal and to converse normally it is like really emotionally and psychologically draining because everything is an effort and it's an effort not to show the effort in itself you're trying to be nonchalant but you're not so you have to pretend to be nonchalant and that takes effort and that takes a toll on you and so after being in those situations you feel drained you feel like you're not yourself and that's why afterwards you feel like you need to retreat and kind of recalibrate and kind of get back to that zero state of being who you are and acting how you want to act and so after you've kind of had that period of regenerating your like social energy then you can go back and do that all over again but there needs to be those periods mm. in between where you kind of recharge what yeah. was drained it's like she's not realizing that all the effort it takes to do this one thing is causing like this negative effect on everything you do for the next few days and so the way she was like, well, if you just make more of an effort, she she gives this really weird like like analogy of how she um, was late for something once, and then he's like, well, have you ever been late to catch a plane? And she's like, no. He's like, well, then you can help being late. You're just selfish. And I'm like, well, that's one a crap analogy, but two. I've got the feeling that actually in this case, and I, I don't know her, so I could be wrong, but it read like she was just shaming herself for being selfish, but she was using the guise of being an introvert as to why she was being selfish. Because to me, it didn't really sound that like... She wasn't that uncomfortable with going places. She just didn't want to. And I think those are two different things. Yeah. And even though we talked about that, like... You know, you shouldn't have to do, you know, no one should expect you to constantly do things you don't want to. But there is a difference between not wanting to and not feeling like you can. Yeah. And not feeling like you can because of being introverted and because of having nerves and anxiety and all these other things. And to me, it just sounded like actually she just didn't want to. Yeah. And, and so she kind of trivializes yeah. more severe introverts as yeah. a result. And I don't even think that should be called selfish either. If you don't want to do something, you don't want to. You're just realising that you're not the type of person people are expecting you to be. And that's okay. Yeah. I think also we both are the type of people where we chafe against social obligations. Yeah. When it feels like when someone invites you to a party or get together or whatever it is, and then you don't go and they kind of 
shame you for it and they say mm. oh you know thanks for not coming to that party i think we are the type of people to have a very strong adverse reaction yeah. because it should be you go there because you want to not because you feel like you have to i feel like if i was throwing some kind of social gathering i wouldn't want anyone to come who really didn't yeah, want to because usually you can tell as well yeah, I want people to come because they want to come and speak to me and the people that are going to be there and enjoy the atmosphere. I know when, like, someone invites me to something and I don't end up going for whatever reason, usually is because I feel too... The anxiety for, like, the anxiety, feeling overwhelmed from being anxious or worrying about not wanting to be in that situation far outweighs the benefit of actually going... Yes, I want to see my friend, but this particular situation has just become so kind of um, messy in my head that I just don't want to go. And then what happens is I say no, and then I feel bad. I feel bad about it for days. And I'm like, no, I'm going to make this up to you, I'm going to make this up to you, I'm going to make this up to you. And then it just becomes this massive massive tumbling thing that leads into other, you know. I wish there was more of a... You know, because there are, you have those friends that are like, they don't really want to chat in between seeing each other. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, they'll say, hi, how are you? But there's not too much conversation other than that. And then there are friends where, you know, you can exchange masses of like logs of chat with them between. And seeing each other is just like a bonus. I liken it to kind of like the long distance relationships that I have with my friends. Like most of my friends don't live near me. And so that's the kind of relationships that I'm kind of used to. And so I think it's just all about what fits you. Like finding what fits you, making sure the other person knows what you're about and just not putting yourself into too many kind of shitty situations because it doesn't benefit anyone. People will know if you don't want to be there. You and know? that just creates kind of a weird vibe. Yeah. Makes other people uncomfortable, whereas they might have been comfortable otherwise. Yeah, like you said, nobody is benefited if you are not able to be exactly. your real self. If you do clam up and you aren't able to converse freely and as you normally would, nobody is benefited from you being there. It's just making everyone else uncomfortable because they know what's yeah. going on. So strange. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> what a day baby what I feel a day. like we've solved some of the world's problems today <laughs> I, I don't know what that sound is I, I envision it's like one of those machines that you sometimes see on TV that's like sucking up all the leaves and that makes me sad there's no machine that sucks up all the leaves I, that makes me sad because I don't want the leaves to disappear are you talking about a leaf blower oh. the clue is kind of in the name oh okay I'm shaming now you right really now. Don't. I'm shaming you for your <laughs> ignorance about leaf blowers. Maybe there are machines that suck up leaves, but I'm pretty no, sure. I think you're right. It's a leaf blower, and because it gets rid of the leaves in front of you, yeah. I imagined it was sucking up the leaves. But either way, I like the leaves. Man, the what a dumb machine! A machine that just blows leaves yeah. around. God, we're such an indulgent civilization. <laughs> Instead of like making medicines for. You know, Medicines. African children. We're making oh. machines that just blow leaves around the yard. Again, all over again. Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting to think about what other topics might come up yeah. in the future. And whether 
I like it when things seem to come like back around, like topics kind of overlap. So that will be fun. It's going to be interesting if we do end up doing this podcast for years. It's going to be interesting to come back in the future and yeah. revisit some of the earliest topics. It'll be like, do you remember that thing that we talked about? Well, oh my god. Yeah, because you may have a completely different perspective on it in the future. Yeah. That's oh, the yeah. weird thing about podcasts, about putting yourself out there on the internet where it's just a conversation. Mm. Like, I think a lot of people listen to things like this and think, you know, screw that guy. He thinks this because he said <laughs> this exact thing. But it's like, maybe I misspoke or maybe I was just going along yeah. with the conversation. And your reaction to things in the heat of the moment can then be different. Like, you could have a conversation tomorrow and it could change. Yeah. And that's just the beauty of kind of like snapshotting how you feel right now. Yeah. A conversation is more like a dance. It's more kind of like you're just exploring ideas together. I don't uh, dance. So don't, so don't ask me. me. I won't dance. So don't ask me. I won't dance, Madame, with you. <laughs> How dare you get me to sing Sinatra? <laughs> yes, on the podcast. that's all, folks. Yeah, so it's a weird one because you can't try and make conversations like this immutable. Like you almost kind of can't criticize someone for what they say in just like a free-flowing nonchalant conversation because it may not be what they actually think they may just be going along with the kind of exercise of a conversation where you say things that you don't necessarily fully believe or have like a strong conviction about just to expand the field of discussion or to play devil's advocate or something like that. Yeah, you do that a lot. Yeah, <clears throat> on, on occasion. You like to play the devil. Well, you can't be afraid. Advocate. If you're going to do a podcast <laughs> or you've, if you're going to put a conversation out there, you can't be afraid of being wrong. Yeah, because I think that's something that I've tried to really get used to. Like, at first I was kind of worried. Is this what I really think? Is this what I want to say? Oh, that was silly. Like, but... No, you can't You can't think about it like that. Yeah. A conversation is different from writing down your thoughts. Like, if I write an essay about something, I've put thought into everything I say. Every sentence I've crafted to reflect what I think, if I'm being intellectually honest while I write. Yeah. And so someone can then tear that down point by point and criticize me and say, this is what you think, and I'm going to hold your feet to the fire because of it. Whereas a conversation is not like that it just kind of goes where it goes it meanders like a river you don't always think about what you're going to say and whether it is truly what you think you just say things yeah because a conversation is a back and forth and you're expected to fill your part of it with something it's like choppy water and it changes with every like other other back and forth interaction that you have it can just constantly feel it's like when i come up with an article and i think i'm gonna say a certain thing and i end up being like oh actually maybe i disagree with what i originally thought but then it's like what are you worried about because like i said if people do ding you for things you say in conversations it's weird because normally when someone has a conversation around you it just happens and then it's over but when you record a conversation and make it into a podcast, it becomes kind of like this eternal statement. Yeah. But it's not. It's not like a signed affidavit of what you think. And it's these really carefully considered, well thought out points that you have your full conviction behind. It's just 
you know, this strange kind of flow of ideas coming out through speech in this weird kind of volley of ideas between two people. Yeah. And yet some people are then inclined to treat it as if it was this kind of carefully considered declaration of your long-held, strongly believed <laughs> positions yeah. on this subject. Well. So yeah, we're at the end of the third podcast. Week three, baby. Three is a lucky number, they say. Three is the magic number. I think we've reached our singing okay. quotient on this episode, <laughs> at least. I love to sing. Everything's a song. Everything's a song? Everything's a song. Even uh, genocide? No. What? You huh? fucking... Yeah. What are you doing? I'm challenging you. No. I just cut it off, end it there, no one knows what happened. We have like a long argument, but I just leave it in the podcast. <laughs> no. How dare you challenge me on that? People are going to think I'm pro-genocide. <laughs> Headline, I just saw like a New York Times page spinning into yeah. focus. It says, RTAP podcast Sam declares <laughs> genocide is a song. Yeah, you think you're going to be in the New York Times? United Nations respond. <laughs> so yeah. Okay, so now comes the, the, the plugs. Now comes the wrap-up segment. And if you've been listening to the podcast, I bet you know what you can expect. <laughs> so, yeah, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We enjoyed making it and putting it out there for you. It's definitely exciting to think about people listening to us talking for two and a half hours. <laughs> it strokes our egos. About genocide. Our, <laughs> Not about genocide. <laughs> our narcissistic tendencies. If you enjoyed it, please share it with anyone else you think may enjoy it. Share it on social media, all that good stuff. Usually I would say that a new episode comes out every Monday, but we're changing that slightly <laughs> from here on in because we realized when we started this podcast, we just landed on a day, Monday, because we thought we should have, you know, a set day when episodes come out. You know, it's very neat and structured that way. But we realized that when you do it like that, it sometimes forces you to record the podcast when you don't want to. Like yeah. some days it'd be like, we'll wake up and we're low energy and we're not in the best yeah. of mood. And it's like, well, we've got to record a podcast because we said we were going to get it on Monday. And that's not good. Like we want to record podcasts when we want to record them. And that in turn benefits you as the listeners because you get us when we're in good moods and we're excited to record the podcast. So basically, this is a weekly-ish podcast. <laughs> it's going to come out every week-ish. There's not a set day. <laughs> We're just going to aim for one pod one new podcast every week or so. And I think that's a fair... I think that's fair. And yeah, you can find the podcast on iTunes or, you know, any good podcast service. They should carry us. We'll be adding our podcast to some more podcast services as the weeks go by. So you should be able to find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also go to rtappodcast.com. That's the initials of after reading this and that, A-R-T-A-T podcast.com, which currently redirects to our SoundCloud page, which is where we primarily host the podcast. And if you have any feedback, you can send it to rtappodcast at gmail.com and we'll be sure to get it. We check the mailbox hourly. <laughs> Even if you just want to say, hi, I like it, smiley face, we would appreciate any comments. And talking of comments, we'd appreciate it if you would rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, because that really helps podcasts, especially new podcasts. And we're still... 
We're still little new babies. We're baby fresh. Uh-huh. We just come out of our podcast mother's no, womb. No, stop. <laughs> you can have a podcast womb. I don't That's know fine. you can. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you can. So yeah, we hope you enjoy this episode. And come back for episode five. The next episode release is just episode five. No. I do it to spite you. <laughs> mean. We never comment on why we just skipped an episode. People think they're going crazy. Yeah. Their podcast apps are broken. That's pretty nefarious. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we'll see you next week then, whatever number it may be. Oh, it's going to be a surprise. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to the podcast. The music used during the intro and outro was kindly provided by Christopher from soundslikeanearful.com. See you next episode.